BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. The expression from the music inspired me so much to take risks and it inspired damn near the whole rap game. Hello again, I'm Adam Unz. You may know me as the host of The Opus, and now I'm bringing my own show, The Spark Parade, to the Consequence Podcast Network. I speak with artists and creatives about the cultural artifacts that spark their personal interest and creativity, whether it's music, books, movies, video games, or any other kind of art. I've never spoke about it in this amount of detail. I'm suddenly going, oh my God, I'm blowing my own mind here, Christ. It's, it's actually a giant part of my life. By talking about the things we love, we share and discover insights into our personality and the things that drive us. It's just magic, really. I mean, frustrating and it makes some people angry, but I don't think anyone's ever done anything like it. I speak with people like Connor Robers, Phoenix's Thomas Mars, Chris Gethard, Helen Hong, Adrian Young, and more, so their sparks of inspiration can start a fire in you. I'm grateful for those who continue to put our history and who we are as a people in the forefront and make you see it. Find the Spark Parade wherever you get your podcasts. Chicago is a ska town. In fact, they were one of the first U.S. cities to have their own homegrown ska band. That group, Heavy Manners, burned bright from 1980 till 1984. In that time, they were one of the biggest bands in Chicago of any genre. When the band formed, their lead singer Kate Fagan was already a local punk celebrity because of her excellent single, I Don't Want to Be Too Cool. In February of this year, Captured Tracks re-released Kate's famous punk single, along with several previously unreleased tracks. It's gotten a lot of acclaim, even a Pitchfork review. So we talked about all of this with Kate, but mostly we chatted about Ska and Al Jorgensen. How much time have you spent in Chicago, Aaron? Um, I've been to Chicago one time. That was when I was roadieing for Skank and Pickle, and uh, they played the Metro. Okay. That's a very famous venue in Chicago. I played at the Metro one time on the Plea for Peace tour, and then pretty much every other time was uh, at the uh, Fireside Bowl. But I love Chicago. Yeah, there's so much ska legacy and history in Chicago with these venues and the size of the show. It's Kink and Pickle Play. It was a sold-out show in advanced. Uh, Slapstick, like you were saying. um, Blue Meanies. Chuck Wren. Um, started DJing there early on and I think really set a, set a lot of interest in ska amongst the, the kids coming up. But before all of that, there was a band called Heavy Manners. Yeah. So we're going even earlier than our era of ska. We're taking it way back. And Heavy Manners are one of the first American ska bands, period. There you go. 
So you live in New Orleans now and have been for a while, right? Right. Almost 10 years. Be 10 years in July. What are you doing? You're doing stuff with music and, and uh, live events there too? Yeah, I've been doing, um, well, have you heard my Christmas records by any chance? I didn't listen to it, but I'm aware of the existence of your Christmas record, the Ho 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 Party, Holiday Party. Yes. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, that came out of doing a live show. I've always wanted to do a theatrical Christmas show mm. with um, some comedy, different kinds of musicians, um, costumes, and uh, MC, and all sorts of fun, and not have anything to do with either snow or Jesus. So, <laughs> <laughs> so I've been collecting Christmas music for a long time. So this was on my bucket list. You I know, mean, I, I just have, you know, a big box of Christmas CDs and records. And um, so I'd been kind of stashing these thoughts away that there were some really fun, funny, sassy, um, you know, and, and, beautiful arrangements, um, interesting sort of R&B and blues. So I put together a show and I performed it for several years around Christmas with this whole troupe of people that I created and then COVID hit. So um, like many people, I was sending money and doing donations to keep the musicians alive. Um, you know, a lot of people weren't working in the scene here. And um, so we were all trying to feed the second line and support the second line and the musician's clinic and all that. So I'd been doing monthly donations to that and some extra donations. And then I just thought, well, heck, I'll just pay some musicians to come in and do an album. Hey, that's the best way, yeah. yeah. It, was, it just seemed very direct to me. And they were so happy to get out of the house. But what was great about COVID for trying to put this project together were that there were so many great musicians that were homebound. Yeah. So I was able to get a lot of yeses <laughs> and a lot of people that were excited to come in and be isolated, but to be able to play their instruments and be a part of a fun record. And so you were you were still able to have everybody come into the studio, but you just isolated everybody individually? Yeah. That's great. But it was different people than necessarily I'd work with. I really sort of kicked it up a level because I could really call anybody I wanted. Yeah. What Name some names of people that you, you had on. Well, um, Tom Hook um, was keyboard player on a lot of it. Um, Josh Paxton played keyboards. Um, Jeremy Joyce played guitar. And um, there are a couple of great trumpet players, Wendell Brunius, um, Armizadi, um, and a couple of different drummers, Rich Collins, and um, oh, and, and Rose Cangelosi was also drummer on the project. Give us an example, a couple examples of like, whether it's on your album or not, great Christmas songs. Uh, you mentioned you didn't want them to be about snow or Jesus. You wanted to get a different kind of Christmas song. So what are what are some examples? All I want for Christmas is to lay around and love on you. All right. <laughs> I want to kiss you all over underneath the mistletoe. Champagne, champagne, hot buttered rum. Um, Santa Claus got stuck in my chimney. It's in there. 
Um, Santa lost a hoe. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So a lot of fun songs that were a little bit more, well, you know, they're party songs. Yeah. Like, Like an adult party, not a, not the kids waiting for Santa party. Yeah. What what do you think's the worst Christmas song? <laughs> um, there's this song. It was on John Waters' Christmas record. Mm-hmm. And it's called um, "Here Comes Fatty with a Bag of Shit." <laughs> yeah, I have that record. Wow. Yeah, you have that. I think that was the worst one. It was so bad. Our band put it together when we were going to play it as the worst song, but the band members actually did not want to be have any part of that yeah understandably <laughs> yeah <laughs> so we ended we didn't end up using the song but we did talk about it in the show because <laughs> the first the first ho 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 show i did um f- for a present my santa claus gave the worst cds out of my collection christmas collection so um we d- someone in the audience asked me what's the worst song and we talked about here comes Fatty with a bag of shit. Yeah, people have done some bad ones. <laughs> Everybody usually brings up a uh, wonderful Christmas time, the Paul McCartney one. But I actually kind of like. Oh that yeah, one. yeah, yeah. That's not too bad, considering what's out there. Yeah. I mean, if for example, I don't know what Johnny Cash was doing on making a Christmas record, but it was pretty <laughs> bad. <laughs> There's another song on that John Waters Christmas record where it's like, uh, yeah. I can't remember the name of the song, but it's just, it's a little like sad tale about a girl named Christmas. Do you know the one I'm talking about? And I think I think it's a, like basically that it's a sad tale of her dying, but her name's Christmas, and it's just warped. Yeah. <laughs> God bless him. He's yeah, so God great. Bless. <laughs> but um, so, and then I have burlesque dancer in the show, and she does um, one of the. One of the, um, the guitar players saying, um, "I sure do love your Christmas cookies, baby," <laughs> which is a, which is a good song, which is a really fun song, Christmas song. So there, there were quite a few people really got a kick out of it, and people come regularly every year. It's gotten bigger and bigger. This last year, I did it at the Broadside, and that's what like five hundred people can fit in there. Nice, nice. So it's gotten yeah, it's gotten bigger and bigger. It's kind of become its own christmas tradition and i enjoyed putting out the record it really gave me something to do i was reading one of your interviews that you did for um the press that you're getting for your i don't want to be too cool reissue and you were you were talking about how you were Mm -hmm. either putting together or wanting to put together a band to play these songs is that something that's happened um that's something that i've moved forward on uh when i did the kissing concept um the sequencer and the and the a drum track were on tape, and we played uh-huh. to that tr- those tracks. So I'm get currently getting those transferred to digital. Okay. So that I can reenact the songs from that show, and uh, there's a I don't think I put out the whole video, but at the Vic Theater I did a full show with myself um, and Ron Rutherford and um, a bass player and a drummer. And that worked out really well. And I have the whole show actually on video. What year was that? I think that was 86 or seven. Okay. So for context, I don't want to be too cool is a song that you released in, I think uh, early, like 81. 
I recorded it in 79 and put it out at the beginning of 80. Okay, so it came out in 80, and um, it, it recently got reissued with some extra unreleased tracks, but some of those tracks were from a um, like an, an opera, I guess, or like a musical that you wrote. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that, that's what the kins, kissing concept is. Right. And so you've, you, you've done it live once or a couple times? I haven't done it live recently, but I, I did it live, yes, quite a few times. Can you explain the plot of the kissing concept? Um, it's, you know, it's a club kid kind of plot where, you know, me, the, me, the person, you know, that sings the lead in it, um, is enamored by a club scene and, um, just kind of gets into a relationship that doesn't really go anywhere. Um, and, uh, you know, there's a sort of a goodbye and a moving on thing. So it's growing up rock opera, you know, going from, being just part interested in the scene to you know being part of it and it's a scene that you really grow grow up fast in mm-hmm. sex sex drugs and rock and roll kind of scene so you're you're kind of commenting on your time in New York right this is when you moved to New York uh, in the 70s mm-hmm. and um you uh you worked as a journalist i believe right no, I worked as a secretary at oh. New York Magazine, okay. Financial World Magazine. I went to the Catherine Gibbs School in New York City. What's the Catherine Gibbs School? It's a, a professional um, business school for women that want to be mm. legal secretaries or high-end secretaries, personal assistants. So you take law and on top of you know the typing and shorthand and. Um, bookkeeping and accounting and other topics like that. So you come out as a really well-rounded professional assistant. So I was the, I was hired to be the um, assistant to the publisher of Financial World magazine. And then I got um, hired to be assistant to the advertising director at New York magazine. Mm. So, you know, you get a really good education when you work as a, a assistant to a high to these high end executives, it's like business school. You know, you really see a lot of what's going on, and you you you're in a lot of meetings, and you get to see a lot of information that most people aren't privy to, and within the organization. So it was it's an, it was interesting. And um, when I moved to Chicago, in fact, I was a personal. I was a um, I worked at the Quaker Oats Company. They asked me to be a regular secretary to fill in for executive level secretaries when they were either between jobs or on vacation or whatever. So that was really interesting, too, because I got to work only in the C-level offices at Quaker Oats Company. So you you were into the you really like the CBGB punk scene, but then you you were kind of seeing the Studio 54 kind of high glam scene growing. You weren't that into it. Well, you know, that's that's what people keep asking me about, you know, the high glam scene in, in New York. And, and yeah, you know, I wasn't really interested in being in a scene that was designer jeans and trying to be beautiful so that somebody with a, a velvet rope would let me in. That wasn't really 
what I was interested in. I was interested in things that like my rock opera, a little bit more street level, a little bit more, um, you know, people that were a little more from the outside, people that were creative and finding their individuality and that were striving to be authentic instead of, um, you know, becoming kind of a stereotype of a beautiful person. Yeah. Do you remember any of the shows that you saw while you were living in New York, ones that you really liked? Yeah, I really liked television. Mm-hmm. The Ramones blew my mind. I couldn't believe how <laughs> funny they were when I first saw them because, you know, they run so, they were very, um, I thought, very sarcastic and had a lot of satire. And they were funny. I really liked them. I liked Blondie and um, <clears throat> Talking Heads I, I was really into. Nice, yeah. So those, those are the ones that I saw prior to moving to Chicago. And um, they still hadn't toured to Chicago. So I was kind of had a leg up on the punk scene in that I'd seen, a, I knew it was happening uh, a little earlier. Yeah, you're living in the future a little bit. <laughs> yeah, a little bit, a little bit. And, and um, I, could, I could kind of vision what a band or what a sound would be like and what a scene, you know, what, the, what a cool scene for that kind of music could be like. What was it like um, working like these really straight jobs, but like kind of being tapped into the underground at that time? It felt really smart. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. I like that. I've always been interested in learning and and being around professional people. Business is really interesting to me. So I could, you know, for, for launching heavy manners, I was able to use some of those chops. I worked at Tom Duty and Associates and I have in Chicago and that was a PR firm. And I became vice president of the restaurant division um, and worked with a lot of celebrity chefs in Chicago. So I, I just really enjoyed that too. I, I liked the challenges of public relations and business and starting something from nothing. And, you know, having a plan, mm-hmm. work, you know, make a plan and then work the plan. And that I thought was a real advantage. It's, it's always been a real advantage for me. And it was never, never an issue being out late at a show and then coming, coming into work in the morning. Well, I, I was, I was temporary. Oh, I, was okay. never, I wasn't, I wasn't full time. Okay. No. So I could, I could pick and choose what days or weeks I wanted to work. Mm, mm-hmm. And um, at the Quaker Oats Company, because they had me on a permanent temp basis, um, I could just say, oh, I'm, I just want to work Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday. That's nice. See, that is smart. That's really <laughs> smart. <laughs> yeah. So I was able to do that. And, um, and I enjoyed that. I, I mean, I enjoyed bartending, too. But there was, you know, in terms of a pay- paycheck always coming in. Um, <laughs> Being a, a temporary secretary with the kind of skills I had at the time was was a really I thought a really smart move for me. Yeah, definitely. and it was something that and it was something that my mom felt good about. <laughs> yeah, got to keep your parents happy. Yeah, my mom, my mom just didn't want me bartending and you know till four in the morning every night. So it wasn't I wasn't trying to please her, but I knew that that was the kind of job that you know had a little more cachet for her. Yeah, definitely. And it paid well. Sure. Yeah. Did you write, I don't want to be too cool. Um, while you were still in New York or once you moved to Chicago. When I moved to Chicago. And so that was, it was commentary on your time in New York, right? 
You know, it was commentary on, um, I think through the lens of what I saw happening in New York, but also um, I in Chicago, it was starting up again. Remember on Rush Street? I don't know if you remember Rush Street in Chicago, but there were faces in some of those places were becoming very, you know, the bleach blondes from the suburbs and that kind of fancy cars and um, buying their designer clothes on Oak Street. That kind of scene was was going on in Chicago. Mm. So it was a commentary on that, but also um, it was a commentary on people in the rock scene that were becoming really enamored with that. That's what they wanted to do next. No, you know, I've, I've hung around in the punk scene and now like, wow, you know, that'd be great if I was getting into those places, (laughs) you know, people that, people that had that kind of ambition. I see. Yeah. To be, to be scene stirs on that level. Right. So what was, um, so Chicago, I know rock and roll is kind of a big part of Chicago at that time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you kind of like paint us a picture of Chicago in the late seventies, early eighties, like what the music scene was like in general? There were a lot of, uh, rock and roll hair bands, especially out of the suburbs mm-hmm. and those big nightclubs out in the suburbs and, you know, cheap trick came out of that scene and Ario Speedwagon and you know, bands like that, that were very um, aggressively guitar. And um, people thought Cheap Trick was sort of new wave when they came out because they were a little more theatrical and um, their um, couple of their songs were a little more topical in terms of what was going on in the punk scene. But um, that was what was going on. In, in the suburban scene. And then, of course, the blues scene, tremendously big, mainly still on the south side. Um, Lincoln Avenue was an amazing scene in the 70s because you had um, all this folk coming through, too. You know, Goodman and, um, you know, this this kind of folk and folk rock scene. And um, that was going on on Lincoln Avenue. You had the Eddie Boy Band, which was a tremendous rock band. They were a little bit like the Almond Brothers. They had two drummers. Huh. They went to L.A. Uh, to try to make it big out there. But it was it was really a creative time in um, in the Lincoln Avenue scene. And it wasn't surprising that clubs around that Lincoln Avenue area uh, were the first to get into punk. It was hard to get booking, so we just did our own thing in warehouses. So what what year was this that where you were doing warehouse shows? Seventy nine and eighty. Cool. How are you finding these spaces? Are they just spots that like artists are living in, or something else? Let's see. How did we find these places? A lot of them were gallery spaces, mm, okay, or rehearsal spaces. Yeah. And then there was the space place, which was a warehouse with a lot of rehearsal spaces, but it also had a performance room. So a lot of punk bands came out of there. When you came to Chicago, you started a band called Band first? <laughs> um, well, Gary Belson was really involved in that, and he and I really hung out, and we started that band. But I was in BB Spin for a while. So where, where did you do your, um, your song, I Don't Want to Be Too Cool, fit in? That was like your own thing, though, right? Mm-hmm. And you you recorded that, and you 
you got it pressed separately from this other stuff you were doing? No, it was it was the first thing I did. It was the first thing. Okay. Yeah. Do, who did you play with? Did you have who was it that played on that record with you? That's uh, Ron Rutherford. But I was playing live with Ron Rutherford and Doug Chamberlain. Now that song becomes pretty popular locally, right? Right. Mm-hmm. Now, uh, how how did that happen? You you went around to lo- like local DJs and and nightclubs and kind of pushed it and yeah, I sure did. Huh. Uh, you know, you could do things there. You know, you could just put up posters and you could just walk in. And I mean, there were still jukeboxes that were playing singles. Mm-hmm. And that that was one way to get people aware of your single. And oh yeah, you huh. could get it on a jukebox. Mm-hmm. How did you get into a jukebox, though? I mean, that's just like, yeah, it doesn't even seem possible to me. But how did you do that? Uh, well, you know, you just ask the bartender to put it on. Really? That's <laughs> it? They'd open up the back of the machine, and then they'd put it on for you. That's amazing. I feel like if you tried to do that now, they'd be like, what? We, that machine's never been opened in <laughs> the entire <laughs> right. time that I've been here. Back then, they're just like, yeah, no problem. No, I don't, most places don't even have them. And if they do, they're digital. Right. Yeah. No, at that time you just, you put a single in. So it's, I mean, for all I know, it's still in some uh, jukeboxes. Yeah. There's some jukebox somewhere that still has that single in it. Yeah, probably. Uh-huh. Did you play as Kate Fagan? Did you just play live or was that just a, just that single at that time? No, I played live. Would you just play under, under your own name? Yeah. Uh-huh. Eventually, though, this leads to Heavy Manners. Heavy Manners starts also in 1980, right? So this, it seems to me this is all happening really fast, right? The Your single, these other bands, Heavy Manners, all kind of happening pretty quick, but one after another. Well, yeah, one led into another. Let's tell the story a little bit about how Heavy Manners starts. I, I believe that uh, J- Jimmy Robinson is kind of the the bass player of the band. He's He's the person, right, that sort of discovered ska by uh, going to England and uh, bringing that back to some of his musician friends. Um, Yeah, I guess he did. Although when I encountered Jimmy, he was really into reggae. That was his that was really his scene is the the reggae scene, the dub music scene, um, the Jamaican connection more than the English connection. So he really wanted to play reggae, and that's mainly what I heard. Um, I don't know if you remember this, but there was a band from there were bands from New York that played reggae that came to Chicago for long periods of time, you know, for for like a month or two months or so. One of them was Mojanaya. Um, there were a couple other bands. So Jimmy and I got together and we started promoting these bands and their gigs in the same warehouses that I had been playing in. Oh, okay. So Jimmy and I kind of got together on that. And then I was, um, the co-director of rock against racism in Chicago. We did a big thing with Patty Smith's band and, um, Bands from all different areas of the city we put on stage in the park, in Lincoln Park. So, um, yeah, we got together with Jimmy. I had gotten together with Jimmy on Rock Against Racism and on these reggae shows. So 
I then I moved into his his building. I was up one floor from him, and I was up there playing punk, and he was down there playing reggae, and so we just kind of started jamming together. And this was when he had also started hearing about or had been exposed to two tone music. Okay, but we we kind of felt like our our combination of putting rock and punk together was our really our own hybrid. Um, we weren't trying to sound like a two-tone band. There was, we loved the English beat and mirror in the bathroom and their dub stuff particularly, but, but there weren't all the, you know, you know, ska bands that there are now by any means. There were only a few people doing that and everybody had their own take on kind of mixing rock and reggae together. So heavy manners was really our own, kind of sound mm-hmm. and you know a lot of people who were getting into ska music got into our band because we were sort of the closest thing i guess to to the <laughs> two-tone sound <laughs> yeah did you did you guys consider yourselves ska though yeah mm-hmm. but just your own take on ska yeah uh uh-huh. nice that's awesome yeah we wanted to be you know to stand out in the field so calling ourselves ska people had an idea that it was a rock and reggae combination yeah a hybrid yeah they knew they knew they weren't going to see a reggae band and they knew they weren't going to see <laughs> like me doing punk they knew it was going to be something different when uh, heavy manners starts in 1980 how how well did the concert going crowd understand what ska was well our first gigs were um we played every Monday night at the Wild Hair. Mm-hmm. So we were really more embraced by the reggae crowd. Wild Hair is an H-A-R-E? Yeah. Like, so, yeah, okay. I was thinking, originally I was thinking Wild Hair, like, crazy. <laughs> yeah. Sorry. <laughs> uh, no, it's a reggae bar on Lincoln Avenue, um, you know, owned by um, Rostam. And so that was... We got in on Monday night because we were we were playing rock and reggae, you know, combination together. But we also played some re- uh, straight out reggae. Was a Monday night a good slot? Um, well, it wasn't a bad slot. Okay. <laughs> you know, it wasn't like a crowd, like a Saturday night crowd. But uh, as you know, a lot of people in the service industries and other bands are off on Mondays. Yeah. So you get a really nice crowd. And in Chicago, of course, um, when La Mer Vipere started the punk club, it was open just on Sunday nights. Um, and that was another reason why, is because people that were in bands or in the service industry, bartenders, um, that kind of thing, could all go and party on a Sunday or a Monday. Oh, nice. Yeah, I hadn't thought of that. You know, hair hairdressers, you know, the, there's a whole whole community of people that like to have their own night to go out. <laughs> Definitely. Yeah. So Monday night was a pretty good night for other reggae bands coming to see you or, you know, other other bands. At, um, and, you know, that was great. So that was a really good scene, actually, the Wild Hair. And Jimmy became um, the MC there after Heavy Manners stopped playing. He was at the Wild Hair for years as the MC. Oh, wow. And he was also a DJ 
he called himself Stateside Jim. Mm. And he played, um, he did DJing before reggae shows and different shows around the city as well. So, so he was, he was really into a, a reggae kind of scene, but um, he liked to rock out too. So it, w- it really worked out great. And um, if you'd seen the, if you saw our band live, you'd know he had a lot of personality. Mm-hmm. Um, he had a, he himself had a, a lot of following and he was very good at um, celebrities like to come to see him. He somehow he was, <laughs> you know, there were people coming to see us um, that, you know, were, were celebrity types, too. And that was because of Jimmy and his personality and his charisma. Anybody notable that we would know? Um, John Hughes was at a oh, ton wow. of our shows. He was a, a big fan of ours and um, some other Steppenwolf people and actresses came to see us quite a bit. Very cool. Yeah. So that was great. Mm-hmm. It was really fun. Just to touch on this, we're, we're kind of talking about this already, but just, we talked a little bit about the rock and, and the blues scene. How would you describe the reggae scene of this time? Non-existent. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, but, it, but, it, but wild hair was where it happened. Yeah, but that wasn't in the seventies or early. It didn't come into being until into the eighties. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah, maybe eighty. I mean, I can't remember when like Bob Marley's later albums came out, but um, it was maybe yeah, Wild Hair maybe opened in eighty. Okay, because we started playing there. Um, but I don't remember a lot of reggae before that. And then when Wild Hair opened, there were like four or five reggae bands, and they just played in. You know, we all had our one night of the week. <laughs> yeah, and you guys had Monday. So it was, it was almost like a residency, but you had your own night, and then you would just come back <laughs> once a week. Nice. Yeah, so you'd hold down a certain night, and people would remember you, and they'd come to see you, and that was really fun. So you played a gig in uh, September of 1980 at Moss Club, and uh, uh-huh. you played with a band called Special Effect. Oh, they're great, too. Okay, so tell people whose band that was. It was um, one of the DJs from La Marivide Prayer, actually. Wasn't that Al, Al Jorgensen's band? Um, he was in, no, he was in Ministry. Yeah, wasn't, he, wasn't that his band before Ministry? No, not that I know of. Oh, okay. My mistake. I, I, uh, I, you got some bad intel, Aaron. I got some bad intel. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never knew Al in another band. He used to come to see us. Oh, yeah? Um, it, and um, he was so straight that I was always really surprised about Ministry being his band. And of course, you know, I saw him a couple summers ago, and I couldn't couldn't even recognize him or his sure. music <laughs> at all. But um, special effect was Frankie Nardello, and he's in um, he still plays. He's in Los Angeles. Wait, so just back up just a second to what you said. Al Jorgensen from Ministry used to come see Heavy Manners play. Yeah, used to come to hear us play and also wanted to come to our rehearsals and hang out. Wow. What was that like? Did he just hang out? <laughs> yeah, he just sat there. <laughs> That's so weird to me. He was kind of, yeah, he was kind of in awe of, especially Jimmy. What was it about Jimmy that he was in awe of? 
Jimmy had a lot of charisma. He was very confident. He was sort of a man about town. He was somebody mm. to know. Um, he was always had a big scene going on at his house. Jimmy had one of those houses where you'd walk in and every it would just be the couch, all the chairs, everybody would be hanging out. That he was that guy. Wow. He was like the ringmaster. So everybody knew him and everybody really liked him. And he was really funny and fun. And he always had, um, he had some friends there that were always cooking, Mm -hmm. which is, you know, reggae Rasta thing. You always have some ital on the stove. Mm. And then you always have good reefer. And you always have people jamming and playing records. And that was the scene. So every now and then you'd see Al come in to, you know, be sitting there. And um, then he, when we jam or rehearse, he'd come and watch us sometimes. Wild. Did uh, uh, did Al Jorgensen uh, dance at your shows? I don't know. I don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, that's that's a nice mental image. Al Jorgensen dance, dancing to ska. He might have been. Um, everybody else was, but yeah. I didn't. I didn't single him out in my mind. Yeah. And and especially at the time because he was just a kid hanging around. Right. So, so I never really gave much attention. I never felt like, oh, there's Al Jorgensen dancing to my music. <laughs> it was just, you know, somebody else out there. I mean, we had a lot of, we had a lot of fans um, mm-hmm. that were that were uh, more interesting, actually, to, <laughs> to notice out there. Well, who do you remember? Um, let's see, the actor, um, Chicago actor. Let's see what's his name. I have one of his shirts. I think um, he was a Natty Dan. Let's see, John Cusack. He was at our shows a lot. Oh wow, John Cusack. That's cool. Isn't there a story where John Cusack um, traded you his shirt for a Heavy Manor shirt? Yeah, he did. He did. <laughs> <laughs> what was what was his shirt? The one he wore in Natty Dan. It was like a um, like kind of a Hawaiian shirt. Wow. Yeah. And he was, um, <laughs> we had all ages shows, mm-hmm. which we started. Um, and um, he was, he would come to the all ages shows, which was really funny. Wait, so nobody else was doing all ages shows in Chicago before Heavy Manners? No. Mm-mm. Amazing. That's awesome. Yeah. That was, that was my marketing business background. <laughs> How did you go about talking the venues into doing that? It was a hard sell, actually, yeah. and uh, quite a few of them didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. But um, a lot of them realized that that was an extra, you know, an extra sell, extra money. And what we what we usually do is do a show before our show. Okay, so in all ages, and then a twenty one up. Yeah, uh, although at Tots, I remember that we could like divide the floor in half with a rope or a cones or something. And we could have um, underage people at the same time. You just had to have a wristband on if you were drinking. But I think that was short-lived. I mean, when, when I first moved to Chicago, the drinking age was 19. Oh, before they, before they made it 21 across the board. Then they moved it back to 21. But, but it was 19, so I could, work, I could bartend at 19 at Dang. the Bulls and at um, the Blues Clubs. Mm-hmm. Like Kingston Mines. I was bartending there too. So you could do that. And 
you know, I did that. And then when I turned 21, the, all of a sudden the drinking age was 21. So I got that like, like that sweet spot. Heavy manners. Um, eventually maybe doesn't take too long. You guys become pretty big. How, how long do you think it takes before you start playing shows until you become this sort of force within Chicago? Um, two years. Two years? Roughly. I mean, you know, building a following. But we were becoming one of the biggest draws at maybe the two-year point was was when we could really hold down a Saturday night consistently and fill a, and, and fill a big club. So that's that's what I think. Big club. How how many how many seats are we talking? Well, like you know, five hundred to twelve hundred. Yeah, those are good size rooms. Uh huh. Uh huh. And we'd sell it out. We'd eventually we were we were so in demand by club owners that we'd get not just the door. We'd start getting a percentage of the bar. Mm. So we were making we were making really good money. Yeah, that's that. I mean, that's where the money really is. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and and we get you know we get the whole door too, which would be amazing. And then we just pay ourselves the warm up act and book that ourselves. Yeah. So how would you pick those warm up acts? Would they end up being friends bands or something else? Pretty much friends bands. Mm-hmm. Anybody notable that you you had open for you on a regular basis? Oh, you know, like Skanking Lizard, and. You know, a lot of those, um, a lot of reggae bands, actually. What do you think led, was it word of mouth or opening for bigger bands? What do you think led to you, the, the, you getting to that point in two years where you could headline and draw so many people locally? Uh, I think it was Airplay. Oh, because so you recorded Flaming First. That, that got a lot of college, college radio play, right? Yeah, we did. We had Flaming First out and we had uh, Taking the Queen to Tea. Um, those singles came out pretty, pretty early on and they did get airplay, especially at like WNUR radio at Northwestern and a lot of the, um, college radio DJs were were playing it, playing our records. And we played at the universities quite often. We became really popular with Northwestern particularly. So Flaming First probably is your most well-known song, would you say? Yeah, uh-huh. I'd say so. Can you explain what that song's about? Um, you know, just the excitement of doing something for the first time. And as you're getting older, you realize that there are not as many of those anymore. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you feel like, wow, I've already done this. But it's not that it isn't fun, but I've I've already done it. And so you're you're for me, I'm continually looking for experiences I've never had before. So that comes from looking for flaming first. You know that it's really, it's really pretty. Up. You know the lyrics are pretty much explain it that you know if I've already done it, I'm looking for something else, and I'm looking for the like a greener pastures or the new, the newest thing, the new record. You know, I love you know my whole life from when I was a little kid. Um, when I got my allowance, I'd go straight to the record store to get the, the newest and latest records. And that would be part of it for me is, is you know, looking for flaming first, being, you know, what is that next sound? What is that next you know, thing that's happening? Um, and especially for uh, 
someone that just likes listening to fresh music. Was there um, was there anything specific that inspired you to write that song? I can't remember if it was something that we needed to what what I wanted exactly bust out of doing that I felt I had done a lot of times, but I, I really can't remember any one incident. Just this just this feeling of um, always being ready to go. <laughs> you know, always, always being, you know, when someone would say, "Oh, this person's in town," or "This person's in town," um, you know, and I'd never seen them, and so I had to go see them if I'd never seen them before. And I'm still like that, you know. Mm-hmm. A lot of, you know, I've of course gone to many jazz fests over the years and all that, and I always like to go see the things I've never seen before. That's the excitement to me. What was the most recent flaming first you had where you uh, saw something or heard something new that really blew your mind? Um, probably Samantha Fish. Yeah. Seeing her live. She, she was, she's really great live. Um, and um, I became an instant fan of Samantha Fish. So she's kind of one of my recent latest things, but you know, just even, um, some of the Latin bands that come around mm-hmm. are are really good, and um, you know that that kind of sound I really like too. Heavy Manners. You also wrote a fair amount of political material, um, mm-hmm. particularly within the sort of you're, we're in the Reagan era and sort of commenting on what's happening politically with Reagan. Uh huh. What are some uh, what are some examples of uh, the more political side of heavy manners? Well, definitely hometown ska, um, definitely um, time bomb, complicated decency. Oh yeah, Compli- complicated decency. I think that was one I was thinking of. That's a that's a political song, right? Yeah, and it's basically a reggae song. What are you t- commenting on in that song? Oh, you know, I've, I've I say like um, you know, journalists catch words undermine the issues and i really felt that was becoming very true at the time that there there were all these catchphrases for things that were much more important and much more complicated and they were all of a sudden being called something like you know um everything was something gate mm. oh yeah like watergate and then it isn't gate and whatever gate and all that kind of thing and and these kind of you know you hear them all the time now too. these little catchphrases and coming back out in the music business too, is, you know, people call me up and ask me to send them my assets, you know, and at at first I'm like, what is that? (laughs) (laughs) Or, or I love this. They want my ephemera. So you're talking about the use of uh, euphemisms to sort of downplay the, the punch of what you're talking about. Right. And, and, and especially in politics, um, you know, that something complicated is just called, well, you know, Trump did it all the time. Mm-hmm. Just re- the reductive uh, thing that the media does and that politicians do. Yeah. So so that was uh, in Complicated Decency. That was kind of at the core of what that song was about. Um, and, um, you know, Window of Vulnerability is one that I throw in there that they, I started hearing as a journal in journalism. And I wondered what the window of vulnerability is. And um, 
you know, I felt that there was all this sort of political contortion going on um, around language. And of course, then, you know, we had Reagan, the great communicator, and he was very good at boiling something down to to a phrase or um, something that sounded very, um, you know, uh, political and in in, um, a way that very patriotically. Yeah, yeah. And he and he had a way to to make it sound like he was just like a just a just a regular guy who was uh-huh. concerned about his American citizens, you know. But it was all it's all bullshit. Yeah, it was all those yeah yeah all those all those catchphrases and so um, complicated decency was really about that that sort of dumbing down. Mm, yeah. Of of the American discourse just being dumbed down. I want to talk about some of the bands that you got to open up for. Um, mm-hmm. uh, the Clash was one of them. Yeah. Can, you t- can you talk about what that experience was like? Well, you know, that's a thrill, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. To be able to, to be on stage with The Clash. And it almost didn't come about. It had to, it moved venues, in fact. Um, it was at the Granada, and then it moved over to the um, Aragon. So I still have some posters that say Granada on it. Um, anyway, so we, um, I, had a, I forgot, I think it was their management that got a hold of us. Sometimes it would be the promoter, but I think in this case, the, the band can always request who their opening act is. And I think they were a little bit curious about us or had heard of us. Mm-hmm. So so we were kind of invited um, and that was a, you know, that's a thrill, right? Yeah, definitely. For them to ask you. Um, so that was really fun. But the band at the time, that was uh, Combat Rock. Okay, yeah. And it was, they had kind of a set piece with that um, that was involved. They were very nice. You could use any of their equipment, all that. Some people are finicky about that. They weren't. But there was a vibe with them that the band was starting to break up around that time. Yeah, yeah, that's right. So I didn't feel that they were particularly like all for one and one for all at that point in time. Yeah. So I don't, they didn't want to just hang as a band. You could, (laughs) you know, you say hi to them and stuff, but they didn't seem like they just wanted to, they, they didn't seem that happy as a group. Yeah, I can, I can see that, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, great show. And certainly, I mean, in I have a little music room and studio in my house, and I have a portrait of Joe Strummer up. <laughs> so he's a, he was a really big influence for me personally um, with his politics um, and his passion and just his, his performance style. Uh, I always thought he was... You know, the things that Springsteen's known for, the kind of stand and deliver and I mean what I say and I say what I mean. I think Joe Strummer was even more authentic with that. Yeah. I mean, all this all this music we're talking about, whether it's like like kind of post-two-tone ska, punk rock, alternative music, uh-huh. Joe, Joe Strummer's kind of like the the Beatles, if you will, of that. Definitely. Definitely really looked up to him. Um, I think I've said this before, but the, uh, 
Jimmy Cliff really impressed me. We did several we did several shows with Jimmy with um, Jimmy Cliff, and he was um, as close to being around somebody that was sort of mystical. Oh. He was he was very um, you know he'd warm up by jumping rope, and um, he was very kind, and you know he'd make sure that he came and found you out to say hi to you as a, you know, band warming up for him. Um, he was really interested in, in politics and um, he was just really impressed. He just really impressed me. I love hearing about how bands, singers warm up, you know, some don't at all, but some of them take very great care into doing whatever they do to prepare jump, jumping rope before a show. That's a pretty interesting one. Yeah. Oh yeah. And just, and vocal warm ups, and he'd have certain teas that he drank and, um, he'd do all these things, but it didn't seem that he was obsessed with that kind of preparation. It just kind of came natural. He did this and he did this and he did this and then he went on stage and, but he was just, he is a very meaningful person in the whole reggae scene. Yeah. Very important person. You know, the harder they come is just kicked it all off. And he's just continued. He comes to Jazz Fest every couple of years. And he's just continued to be amazing. Yeah. So taking a step back, um, you used to, you lived in London in the, in the mid seventies, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. And that was actually your introduction to reggae music, wasn't it? The harder they come while you were there. Yeah, mm-hmm. definitely. And, and, well, the culture in in London had more Jamaicans and island islanders mm-hmm. than Chicago, for example. Um, or you know, I'm I'm from both. I'm from the Washington D.C. area. Um, I'm from Maryland, and you know, certainly we didn't have a lot of people from the islands living in Rockville. <laughs> so, <laughs> but but when you when you're in England, it's very, the scene is very mixed. And there were a lot more reggae musicians playing in the mainstream. So you'd, you'd be able to, to hear reggae bands um, and hear them also on the air, which I've never heard a lot of reggae on mainstream radio here. Yeah. It was on, you know, the BBC was playing it. And eventually in Chicago and in the United States, you get this every Sunday afternoon reggae show. I don't know if you remember that in Chicago. Um, mm. WNUR would do that. And, but in London, that wasn't, wasn't just relegated to one day or one afternoon or three hours. So you'd hear a, a greater mix of music. Yes, you you guys also uh, you toured a bit with uh, English Beat. Yeah, we did. That was an interesting little tour. It was we kept calling it the "Where We Are, Where Are We Now" tour because <laughs> we'd get into a little bus, <laughs> and and then all of a sudden we'd be in St. Louis or Madison, Wisconsin, or in oh, the funniest ones were we'd play in Iowa, um, Nebraska. You know that. 
those kinds of places. So we were sort of on the where where the hell are we now tour, we thought, which was a lot of fun. But I was the only woman with 28 men in tour. And and I'll, I thought, I'll never do this again. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, I bet that must have been <laughs> something. <laughs> yeah. And I thought, you know, if I was with another girlfriend, I would probably be having more fun because we could be on more adventures together. But as it was, I'd be the only one. And that was kind of, you know, I, I needed a pal. Yeah. Yeah. But the English beat, you know, those guys were really like, they were really into blondes and they were really into, you know, at, at every Dave Wakeling would have, um, you know, every show there'd be another girl walking around with his jacket on. <laughs> and, um, but yeah, I got to be pretty good friends with Rankin Roger. And when they'd come to Chicago, he and I would, would go out and hang out together. Rankin Roger seemed like such a sweetheart. He was. Mm-hmm. He was a really cool guy. He was. It was very much a gentleman too. But he's he's actually a very good musician, and I've really missed the band. I've really missed him being in the band when I've seen the band. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. His energy, the way the two played off of each other, and I thought it was a shame. But I I love Fine Young Cannibals. Still one of some of my favorite music. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Fine Young Cannibals, great band. Yeah. So he was great. That that was fun to play with them, but like I said it was that sort of like where you at now tour. And <laughs> we you know like we'd play we go play um <clears throat> I think this was in Nebraska, Lincoln, Nebraska. We got booked into a place called the Drumstick. So, you know, we we march in there ready to play, we're expecting a music venue, and it ends up a chicken restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> like that kind of drumstick <laughs> so you know there was always this where where are we going to play and then in madison we played at the uh the stock um it was the stock pavilion which we didn't know was livestock <laughs> so we were actually playing in a big barn with hay on the floor i, I i'm sensing a theme here <laughs> yeah so it was it was pretty funny i mean yeah it, it could be a could be a funny movie tv <laughs> show with you know this band where are we playing tonight and it would always be something ridiculous and then at um we played at washington university in the in the chapel so you're playing and then you know the the table of sacraments is right in front of you mm-hmm. so it was just it was always bizarre but fun so heavy manners um you had one lp politics and pleasure you headlined uh, Park West uh, when for the album release show, and it's my understanding that it was not only sold out, but a line around the block to get into you. Yeah, that was very heartwarming. You know, Chicago was one of the last places that got cable television. Mm, wow! And I think I think it was a political thing. You know, they couldn't decide who was going to get the contract, maybe. Mm. for years Mm -hmm. but we didn't have mtv till three years or something after that started so so we still had really big rock clubs eventually the kind of video and then the djing were took over in, in a lot of different nightclub situations it was a way you know they didn't have to pay the band they just put on these videos 
and people danced to the videos, Madonna, whoever, right? Um, but we didn't have that. So we, we, could, we could get a really big audience um, for a record release where, you know, years later. And then we started, Heavy Manners started the um, Chicago Video Music Awards. Heavy Manners started this? Yeah. <laughs> With Shelly Howard. Shelly had Shelly Vision. Oh, that sounds familiar to me. Yeah. Yeah, he's one of those DJs that that had videos early on. So he could play it like <laughs> like if we were playing at Park West, he'd that'd be the warm-up act would be a bunch of videos of you know, Madonna and Blondie and you know, that kind of era. So um we started the video music contest because we felt that we were missing out on this whole kind of scene that was going on in the music world at the time because we didn't have cable tv in chicago so we did that several years before prior to mtv being available in the chicago area do you recall any videos that uh that won i think um i'm thinking immune systems video one one year um there was hugh hart um jim desmond um, who else was doing videos around then? Um, the Dadistics, those bands were all involved in it. And and you shot a video for Flame and First as well. Yes, we did. Mm-hmm. Um, now I'm curious. So that video is like live footage, and then there's like you guys around town. Um, what do you remember? How much we're on the co- L stop? Yeah, do you remember how much it cost you in the early '80s to shoot your own video? Oh, nothing. Oh, yeah? No, my husband shot it. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And he was a producer at WGN. Nice. And I had a whole bunch of equipment. And I have, have, because of him, I have this boxes of tapes. So when, when this reissue project came out for me, people, you know, sort of say, well, why you? And I think in part why me is because I happen to have, have, had really good quality tapes, audio and videotapes um, that I happened to have kept. But a lot of people were recording on home eight tracks and, you know, that kind of thing. They were doing a lot of recording, but I was one of the only people, or Hemi Manners, and then myself, um, we were some of the only people that were really going and recording on reel-to-reel tapes and studios and, you know, had that kind of access. And because I was married to a producer, um, I could, you know, for example, the the shoot that he did at the Vic Theater is a two-camera shoot, and it's very nice. I mean, it could it could be on um, PBS or something. I mean, it's a very high quality uh, for for the time, and I doubt that a lot of people have that much material sitting around that's in that kind of um, condition, and that was recorded at that high of a level. Yeah, definitely not in the early '80s for sure. No, mm-mm. I want to talk a bit about your um, your work with Peter Tosh. So this came after Politics and Pleasure, right? Yeah, it was kind of a last gasp. Yeah, yeah. Work trying to make it in, in a larger, you know, in national or internationally. So, so part of the game plan for Heavy Manners was we want to try to get a record deal so that we can do this professionally, right? 
Yeah. Okay, so um, tell me a little bit about how you met Peter Tosh first and how this him working with you as a producer came about. Well, we opened up for him at the Aragon Ballroom for his show. Mm-hmm. And he was doing that Walk and Don't Look Back tour. He really had a hit record. Mm, one yeah. of the only times, one of you know, and he had been playing with the Stones. And so he had a lot of cachet at the time. And our um, our attorney, Linda Mensch, uh, was representing Don Kinsey and his dad, Big Daddy Can- Kinsey. And Don was playing guitar for um, Bob Marley. And he's recorded with Peter Tosh, Peter Tosh's version of um, Johnny Be Good. Do you know that tune? Mm-hmm. Tosh yeah. tune? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So he's the guitar player on that. And he's a Chicago guy. Um, and he's represented by Linda Mensch. So we opened up for Peter Tosh, and Peter Tosh really liked our band. And he liked, he loved the song Say It. And he thought um, we were a fun group of people. Again, Jim Robinson charmed him. And, um, you know, uh, he wanted to smoke dope with Jimmy and you know that kind of stuff <laughs> you know because Jimmy was just that kind of guy that he just seemed like he knew what was going on in the scene and he always did but he attracted people from out of town and like I said celebrities to kind of seek him out and and hang with him so Peter Tosh did that too and so then we got um approached by Linda Mensch to do this record that involved not just Peter, but Don Kinsey. Um, so we said that sounded like a good idea. Um, we were a little bit hesitant because we knew it would be expensive to bring mm-hmm. someone in and, and to do it at an expensive studio in prime time and all that stuff. So we knew we were going to kind of have to blow our wad on this thing. So um, Peter came in and it was really funny. His manager had called me and said, you know, he's a Rastafarian. So I want you to read a book on Rastafarianism. And I want you to be aware of the the Rastafarian culture and how they treat women and where women fit into the Rastafarian culture. So, of course, I'm reading this book and I'm thinking, well, you've got to be totally natural. You no wear no leather or animal products, um, no makeup, um, you know, just kind of like low, low key. Right. And, um, you know, the Rastafarian thing and how unusual it was for, um, like a white woman to play with a Rasta. Right. So, so then I'm in the studio and Peter comes in and he has, here I am and you know, I'm like in flip flops and <laughs> no makeup and all that kind of stuff. And he walks in with a showgirl from Vegas. <laughs> and she has a, she has done up makeup. I mean, she were, was wearing more makeup than most of the drag queens I've met, you know, and she had gold fingernails and toenails. And, you know, she was really, um, you know, it, it surprised me right away and it, it kind of made me chuckle. I guess making you chuckle. And um, so, you know, we were off to the races and it being not what we expected. 
um, and not who we expected. And it was, it was a fun scene. Um, Peter was a little more aloof than I would have wanted him to be as a producer. Um, the guy that ran a lot of the session was Dennis Thompson and Dennis Thompson was Bob Marley's engineer. Mm-hmm. Um, and he was incredible. And Don Kinsey had some, some good ideas and Peter Tosh had a lot of good instincts and suggestions. And he did sing background vocals on one of our songs and, um, it was great, but, but he suddenly had to leave and we were suddenly out of money and we didn't feel in the end that we really had, um, a single. How many songs did you end up recording in that session? Four. Oh, okay. And, and with two of them not being totally complete and him wanting to do uh, remixes and dub versions of the material. And one of the last things he did was when he was running out of town was he took Say It and did a dub mix of it. So when we put out Say It, we put it out as a, a, a big vinyl single with a dance mix on the other side of it. But we didn't have, um, say it wasn't, it was never totally completed. And um, I, I like the way the record sounds and I think it's got a great guitar solo on it. And it's got a nice groove. It slows down in the middle. Um, and that bothered me. Um, I like to, when, if anybody records with me now, I usually make them use a click track mm-hmm. so that I can edit. Um, and at the time, you know, there was, there were like some shortcuts like that, that I felt were, um, I couldn't really feel like I could jump in and take over the session. I'm more savvy about recording now than I was then. Um, and, uh, there was a bit of people coming and hanging out that were, um, interested in, Oh, Peter Tosh is in the session. You know, we want a lot of, people in other reggae bands and friends of Jimmy's and, uh, you know, other people, other band members, friends that kind of wanted to come and hang out a little bit in the studio. Um, Uh There's some, there's some funny stories. I mean, he had to have his ITAL, you know, his own cooking. So he, he brought along his own herb man and cook and he had never seen a, a walk, an electric walk, and he needed to be able to cook a fish fry in the studio. In the <laughs> right, so we're he wanted to cook a fish fry in the studio because that's what he does, and so he um, I borrowed my older sister's walk and I brought it in, gave him to him. Oh my god! So um, like two months later, I get a call from Peter Tosh. He was wondering if I can import walks to Jamaica <laughs> <laughs> because he was so impressed with them. <laughs> and I, I just got such a kick out of that, you know? Um, anyway, so we're having this fish, you know, we're having this fish thing going on and, you know, so the studio smells like a fish cookout. Right. Mm-hmm. And um, so we're getting ready to, to eat it. And Peter eats the head, <laughs> which, which I thought was a, kind of hilarious too, because there was all these good herbs going in and all this stuff going on. And then he just eats the head. <laughs> I don't know why it just kind of cracked me up. 
Um, wasn't part of your payment to Peter that you also had to bring in a, a pound of weed? Oh, not a pound of weed. Um, he wanted, um, Jimmy had tie stick. I don't know if I should be saying this on the radio or whatever, but Jimmy had really, Jimmy always had a tremendous stash of, of smokables. Mm-hmm. You know, he, he would have um, hash. And he would have different strains of marijuana and Hawaiian. And um, anyway, he had tie stick and it blew, he, he brought a joint in um, and Peter smoked it. And he doesn't pass joints around, by the way. He, he, <laughs> he just bogards it. Yeah. You hand him a joint and he keeps it. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so at first the rest of us in the band are horrified that now We've brought Peter Tosh and we've gotten him so stoned. <laughs> like he wants to take a nap before he gets started in the studio. <laughs> so, so I thought, well, that's kind of crazy. But and then the next day he comes in and he goes, I want some more of that tie stick. So, yeah, I mean, we didn't have to give him a pound of pot, but he sure did want to have the really good tie stick. <laughs> Amazing. You said that the Peter Tosh thing was kind of the last attempt or last gasp to keep the band together. So I want to kind of talk about what happened and and why you guys made the choice to end the band. I mean, obviously the recordings didn't didn't go anywhere. You didn't get a deal out of them. Right. And that was a, a disappointment for us. And we were coming up with new material and our new material was taking on a little bit of a different feel than Hmm. the ska music that we had. What kind of feel? Well, Frankie had exited the band. Hmm. So he went to Hollywood and we got um, another sax player and, and he was good, but he wasn't a ska. He wasn't, he wasn't from the same kind of scene that we were from. Mm -hmm. You know, he was more of a academic, um, more of a musician out of, um, you know, playing jazz and classical. So he wasn't the same kind of kind of hang out, smoke pot and listen to reggae kind of guy that, you know, like Jimmy and Mitch were certainly. And so so we we lost Frankie and Frankie was one of our songwriters. So that happened and then um kevin smith started writing more and he's his career is amazing he writes a lot of jingles he's with the chicago cats he plays a lot of big gigs he's also into the gospel scene making gospel albums but his feel was a lot more um professional than maybe the sky was a little more raw than his music was yeah so in in his music was a little more complicated in its form. It had more part instead of it just being sort of chorus, verse, solo, maybe a bridge. His material was a little more complicated in its structure and harmonics. Um, so our band was beginning to sound a little different. And then I was really, am, I was continually ambitious. So I kind of felt boxed into ska. I was writing my rock opera and any, 
And I wanted to write songs that didn't all have that same kind of ska beat to them. Mm -hmm. Different things were coming out of me. I was becoming more sophisticated as a songwriter, I thought. And I was taking music lessons. Um, I went to the Bloom School of Jazz to study, you know, chords and some other things. So I was becoming more interested in different forms of music. So we kind of evolved personally in different directions. And then in terms of financially, we really did spend our money on Peter Tosh and would have to start playing those gigs very frequently again to get that money, to get more money. And we had already, we had played for maybe four years, three times a week, often, um, sometimes twice in a day. So it was, (laughs) it was getting to a point where, you know, people were, you know, I think Shell was getting married and just the lifestyle wasn't really working for everybody at that point. So it was just getting kind of old for us. And then, as I had mentioned before, the video was coming into the clubs. So a lot of the clubs, like for for example, Park West on a Friday or Saturday night would have a video dance party. So the scene was really changing from big live music venues to more of um, these sort of dance clubs. I see. Yeah. So that that was kind of all happening at the same time. So we disbanded, but then, of course, we had a reunion later on. Remember? I think 2008 was your first reunion, right? Yeah. mm -hmm. And we put out a single again. We put out um, Get Me Out of Debt and um, Get Me Out of Debt and Fight the Good Fight. I wrote both of those. So in between the time you broke up and the time you got back together, uh, Ska got really big in the U.S. and uh, Chuck Wren, yeah, uh, Jump Up Records, he included you on the uh, uh, first American Scothic compilation. Yes, he did. No, did you have a relationship with him? Jimmy did. Okay. Did you realize that there was this whole interest in Ska when he was putting that together? Uh, Jimmy talked him into uh-huh. becoming... A ska DJ. Oh, really? Yeah. Jimmy had a store on Broadway where he was selling guitars and um, Chicago police leather jackets and jeans and other things. And he had um, an early website, but he was selling a lot to Japan and sneakers and he was having a nice little business, very small storefront on Broadway, and Chuck Wren wandered in. <laughs> and at um, Jimmy's funeral, Chuck got up and talked about the reason that he was in Scott was because of Jim, Jim Robinson. And I really hadn't heard the whole story until that moment. But um, he was very influenced by Jimmy, and he kept saying to Jimmy, you know, I, I couldn't just be ska like I don't know if you know it's too niche and and Jimmy really gave him the confidence to decide to do jump up records and jump off from there and I just got a record from Chuck yesterday I got rude girls to the front this compilation of female ska artists Mm -hmm. from the supernova international ska festival so um yeah Chuck's Chuck's still in it, and he did. Um, he reissued a song for Jimmy. He, Jimmy had written um, "Taking the Queen to Tea," and we put that out um, 
and did a tribute to Jimmy and he had a funeral and all that. Yeah. So Jimmy passed away in, um, t- uh, 2018 and, um, yeah, th- you, you, you did a tribute show to him. Can you, can you talk about what that was like and what that was like for everybody? It was sad. Yeah. It was really sad. Um, he had struggled with cancer and he was very private about it. So we weren't sure about it. His widow actually came up to me and said, I'm so, so there's so many times I was going to call you and I didn't because Jimmy wanted it to be a private thing. But she said, I wish you would have been able to talk to him and say goodbye because you two, you know, started heavy manners together. And, um, we were always really, really good friends. We had a really unique friendship. Um, so we were sad and she was really devastated. He has two sons. Uh, one was, I think just graduating high school and one just graduating college. And they were, their friends were at the, the tribute. Um, and then there were a lot of people that showed up. Michael Freeman, who was the engineer for Flaming First and club owners, the guys that owned the wild hair showed up. It was a, it was a wonderful tribute to him, but it was, it was really sad. It was, yeah, it was very sad. It was very sad. And, um, um, we, we were all really sad about it and we tried to do our best, but there were some tears. We put together a nice video, you know, collage of, of ephemera, um, <laughs> And, and assets um, that we had. <laughs> so um, we, had a, we had a really nice tribute to him. It was, it was really sweet. And we sold um, his record and gave his, the, the um, money, the proceeds from it went to his family. And Chuck had put that out. Yeah. And he spoke. Um, it, was very, it was very touching. Mm-hmm. And it was... His family was really, really crushed. So that's hard to watch, to see. You know, his Kate, his wife, and their two sons together were just really devastated by his loss, wow. by losing him. Yeah. Oh, I know. It's, it's sad. So sad. And then we played, um, we played some other gigs with Joe Thomas on bass. How has that been doing those gigs? Oh, great. Joe's great. Joe's really great. Um, he knew Jimmy well, and he's a, he's, oh, he's, he's a fabulous bass player. He played with Buddy Miles. He played, you know, reggae. He's played all different kinds of things. He really was a big fan of the band. Um, he just fit in perfectly. Um, he's got, you know, like long dreads and Rasta. And so we were able to, to kind of have some of the same still like flavor and look to the band. Um, and it's been really fun to play with him and I've, he, we're good friends. You know, he's good friends with all of us now. He's really incorporated himself, um, into our thing and, um, we're lucky to have him. When's the last time uh, Heavy Manners has played a gig? We haven't, we didn't, we didn't, haven't played a gig since before COVID. And I don't know if we're going to, um, I would like to, and with all this, publicity that i've been getting a lot of it well all of it mentions heavy manners um and talks about them and also um gives me 
by way of introducing me, talks about heavy manners being one of the chief things that was important to me and that I was successful with. Um, so, you know, I'd love to take some of this publicity and, and move it into doing a really good heavy manners show. But um, Mitch, our guitar player, had spinal surgery. Oh, geez. And Shell, and yeah, and sh- he couldn't even, he couldn't hold his guitar as of maybe six months ago. Mm. So he's had a, a way to come back and he's been, he said he's been determined to, but that's a big surgery. And then Shell, um, he broke a shoulder, I think. He fell off his bike, he broke it, I think, or broke, or broke his arm. And anyway, he, so, he just didn't play drums for a long time. And then Frankie is a music attorney in Nashville. So to put us back together again would take quite an effort for us to do a gig. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But the last one we did, I think, was um, um, we played with the English Beat at um, the Metro. Oh, yeah? We, we did the English Beat with the Metro. A few years ago and that was great and very fun and a lot of our audience was there nice a lot of our audience and, and the, the english beat came out and they said you know heavy manners really knows how to draw a crowd and it was very fun there were people that were coming up to me that whose parents had met at heavy manners show dang that's cool. <laughs> yeah. That was yeah, it was just really fun. We always wanted to see you because our parents would always go and see you and that was it's just really nice to have that kind of goodwill. Don't go anywhere. If you want to hear the rest of this conversation, head over to our Patreon. Thank you for listening to In Defense of Scott. Please rate and review this podcast and tell a friend. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok at Ska. Pick up Aaron's book, Ska, at your local bookstore or online. This podcast is edited by Chris Reeves of Ska Punk International. This is your co-host, Adam Davis of Omnigon, leaving you by saying Ska now more than ever. credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Hey, everybody, it's Barry from the What Podcast. Hey, it's Russ. Hey, it's Brian, and we are giving away two tickets to Bonnaroo 2024. These are GA+, and they include camping. Russ, how do people get qualified? We want to hear your top artists to play on the Bonnaroo 2024 lineup. Call 423-667-7877 and tell us who we should check out. It's the What Podcast. Thanks.